Lesson 44 of the study of Romans finds us finishing chapter 13 today. We're going to get into chapter 14 a little bit. And you're going to note that it took 42 lessons to get us through the first 12 chapters, right? And then we breeze through chapter 13 in two, two sessions, less than two sessions. And the reason is simple. This is really common sense stuff. I mean, what, what part of thou shalt not commit adultery don't you understand, right? These are things that all believers should know and practice. And so we left off last week with verse 8. I want to read it again. It says, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. Paul says, To love one another is to fulfill the law. And then he's going to repeat himself in verse 10. He says, Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of of the law. You see, sandwiched between these two, love is the fulfillment of the law, there are four of the big ten. And the reason is simple. These sum up loving your neighbor in the eyes of Paul. Now the word for fulfill there has been taken by the church to mean that the law is no longer valid. If you just love your neighbor, you fulfilled the law. And you no longer need to study or follow the commands of Torah. Well, that's almost true. The problem is I don't know anyone who knows Torah well enough to truly love their neighbor. You see, if, you, if love is the fulfillment of the Torah, then the Torah has to be the yardstick for love. So if you did love your neighbor, then you would not need Torah because you'd already be doing everything in the Torah naturally. That's why Paul said this in chapter 2. He said in verse 14... Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law, since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. The problem is, is that's a hypothetical statement. And no one has the law on their hearts well enough without Torah to love their neighbor. So love being the fulfillment of the law or the Torah is not the end of the Torah, but it's the essence of the Torah. The fact is, this is nothing new. Paul is is not uh, relating to us some mystery that he understood. Because Yeshua says something quite similar as well as other rabbis. No, this is something that the rabbis understood. Remember, Paul studied Torah in the tradition of Hillel under the grandson of, uh, under his grandson Gamliel. Well, Hillel said this. On another occasion it happened that a certain heathen came before Shammai and said to him, Make me a proselyte on the condition that you teach me the whole Torah while I stand on one foot. Thereby he repulsed him with a builder's cubit, which was in his hand. When he went before Hillel, he said to him, What is hateful to you, do not do to your neighbor. That's the whole of the Torah, while the rest is commentary thereof. Go and learn. The summarization of the Torah into one or two commandments was not uncommon. It didn't mean that Hillel went and threw out the rest of the Torah because he could sum it up in... What is hateful to your neighbor, what is hateful to you, do not do to your neighbor. No, it just meant that Hillel saw that if you took all the commands and you were to sum them up in a statement, 
then it would be loving your neighbor as yourself, or as he put it, what is hateful to you, do not do to your neighbor. That would be the summation. In the same way, Paul says, love does no wrong to his neighbor, therefore love is fulfillment of the Torah. The point is this, the Torah, the law, is the manual, the handbook, if you will, for loving your neighbor. We read a verse last week, I closed with this quote from Yeshua from John chapter 15, it says, My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. You see, Yeshua laid down his life literally in the sense that he died for us. But he laid down his life first in service of God by living out the Torah to its deepest meaning. What he termed fulfilling the Torah. He lived out the Torah to its fullest and fulfilled it. And that's our example of how to live by Torah and how to love our neighbor. He added the true understanding to each and every precept, living life by them, by their true meaning. And that's what he commands us to do. And he says, if you do that, you're his friend. Who wants to be a friend of Yeshua? Well, in the Sermon on the Mount, Yeshua tells us exactly what he came to do. He says very much the same thing. He says, I came to fulfill the Torah. And loving your neighbor was the basis for the whole of the Sermon on the Mount. He says this in verse 17 of chapter 5. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say unto you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or the, or the least stroke of a pen shall pass until all be accomplished. Yeshua knew that he would he would often be at odds with the rabbis over the commands in the Torah. Things like, what's permissible to do on the Sabbath? Or do you have to ceremonially wash your hands before eating? The rabbis had strict rules in these regards, and Yeshua disagreed. And he knew by disagreeing, he would be accused of trying to do away with the Torah. So at the start of his ministry and the start of this message, he makes it clear, I've not come to do away with a single command. I've come to correctly interpret those commands for you, to fill them with meaning. And then he goes on in his sermon to explain the fuller meaning of the Torah by giving us the truths of the commands. As an example, God says, do not commit adultery. Yeshua says in verse 27, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that Everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You see, he tells us adultery is a matter of the heart and the eyes, not necessarily the act itself. And so Paul says this in verse 9. He says, For this you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there's any other commandment, it's summed up in this seed. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Why Paul lists off these commands is, is uncertain, but he felt that they were probably the most important to loving your neighbor, or perhaps he felt they were of very much importance to the Romans. 
But the fact is, he could have summed up all of those four with one. He could have just said, thou shalt not covet. Right? Because you steal because you covet something that belongs to someone else. You commit adultery because you covet someone's husband or wife. So then finally Paul sums up again the whole of the Torah. In verse 10 he says, Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the Torah. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor is the command. And the Torah Torah defines love for you. The Torah tells us that God hates it when you make idols of gold or silver. The Torah tells us that God wants you to rest and gather together on the seventh day. The Torah tells us that God desires to have relationship with his people. And that's accomplished through prayer. And when we do those things, in our obedience, we show our love for him. In the same way, the Torah tells us not to do what's hateful to your neighbor. Things like stealing, adultery, coveting. They don't show your love for your neighbor. And doing things like caring, doing caring things like sharing when he's in need, returning that which belongs to him if it's lost, respecting his property, gathering with him to worship on the Sabbath day, that's loving your neighbor. Do those things and you fulfill the Torah. But once you reach the fulfillment of loving your neighbor, you just don't throw the Torah away, as some in the church have defined Yeshua's fulfillment of the Torah. No, you continue on in your success. Amen? You put those commands in your heart so that they become habit for you. So that you continue to love your neighbor. And then he says of loving your neighbor in verse 11, he says, Know this. Do this, excuse me, do this knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. He says, wake up. For salvation is near. He's going to talk about the end of days in a minute. Now, as I've stated before, Paul sees the Gentiles turning to God as a sign of the end of days. And he knows the Jewish people, if they see this, they will understand that the end is near as well. He sees it as a fulfillment of, a, of, of Isaiah chapter 49, as it says this in verse 5. And now says the Lord who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the sight of the Lord. And my God is my strength. He says, it's too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light to the nation so that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, and its Holy One, to the despised one, to the abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers. Kings will see and rise, princes will also bow, because the Lord who is faithful and the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. He sees Yeshua fulfilling this prophecy, the nations hearing and accepting the good news, and he also knows that when the Jewish people see the nations turning to God, they will come to the same conclusion. They will begin to be envious and accept Yeshua as well. They will see the end is near, and it's Yeshua who's bringing all of this about. 
They will see that he's the servant spoken of here, and they'll accept Yeshua as the Messiah. He knows that if the Jewish people who know the scriptures will see this as a will see this uh, being fulfilled in Isaiah 42. I'm going to read verses 1 and 2 and 4. It says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit on him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor will he make his voice heard in the street. The coastlands will wait expectantly for his Torah. Thus says the God, God the Lord. And so he's going to bring justice to the nations and the coastlands will wait for his Torah. The coastlands is just another term for the nations. And then Isaiah continues in verse 6, chapter 42 and verse 6, it says, And I will appoint appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. It says he's going to be a light to the nations. How will he do that? Well, easy. Psalm, what does Psalm 119 say? It says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. He's also going to see, they're, they're going to see this. Isaiah 51, verses 4 through 6. Listen to me, my people. Hear me, my nation. The law will go out from me. My justice will become a light to the nations. My righteousness draws speedily near. My salvation is on the way. My arm will bring justice to the nations. The islands will look to me and will wait in hope for my arm. Lift up your eyes to the heavens. Look at the earth beneath. The heavens will vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment and its inhabitants like flies. But my salvation will last forever. My righteousness will never fail. It says my salvation there. And if you look in the Hebrew, it says Yeshua. Paul knows that if the Jewish people sees the nation, see the nations turning to God, turning back, turning to his Torah, turning away from their idol worship to the worship of God... Because of Messiah Yeshua, it will cause his people Israel to open their eyes to the truth that Yeshua is the Messiah. The nations turning to God is one of the signs of the end of days. And when you see this, you know why he says this in Romans 11, why he said this. I'm talking to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I'm apostle to the Gentiles, I make much of my ministry and hope that I may somehow arise some of my people to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection is reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? He sees the nations turning to God and Israel turning to the Messiah as the culmination of the end of the age, the return of the Messiah. However, let's be reasonable. For Israel to accept that Yeshua is the Messiah, he knows that all of that depends on the nations loving their neighbor as themselves. They're accepting Yeshua, the Yeshua of God, and accepting the Torah and turning from idol worship. And Yeshua... And to Yeshua, but sadly, my friends, that is not what happened. They didn't give up the idol worship. 
Listen to what verse 11 says. Know this, knowing the time that is already the hour for you to awaken from your sleep, for salvation is nearer to us than when we believe. What does he mean by salvation is nearer to us when we first believed? Well, I think Paul is referring to the end of days and the non-Jews flocking to the Messiah on account of the good news. And I believe that he thinks that the end is nearer. Listen to verse 12 through 14. The night is almost gone. The day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not arousing, not carousing and in drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Yeshua, the Messiah, and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Now, again, without a change in thought, he's going to continue on into chapter 14 and tell us what it means to put on the Lord Yeshua, to love one another, and make no provision for the flesh. He doesn't doesn't skip a beat here. He says in verse 1, Now accept the one whose faith is weak, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. Now, if we're going to make sense of chapter 14, if we're going to make sense of the rest of chapter 14, we're going to have to come to grips with the terms in this verse. First notice it says, do not pass judgment on his opinions. If you look in the NIV, it says disputable matters. Young's literal says reasonings. And what we're speaking of here is the opinions of men The reasonings of men about God in his Torah. As an example, the rabbis looked at Exodus 34, verse 26. Thou shalt not see the kid in its mother's milk. They looked at this and determined you shouldn't eat meat and milk together. That's their opinion on the word of God. I look at the verse and I don't see that. I see that God didn't want you to offer a young animal by cooking it in its mother's milk. That's my opinion. Who's right? Well, I am, of course. (laughs) That is, if you ask me. If you ask the rabbi down the street, he's right. So that's an opinion. It's a disputable matter. And because of that, I've chosen to separate meat and dairy rather than dispute, rather than argue with someone who might come in who, who does. It says weak in faith. This is going to be huge in our understanding of the passage. First, let's examine, what what does he mean by faith? Because faith is a rather large topic. Faith, for example, as an example, a person who's well-studied in the Word of God would have more faith than one who hadn't studied at all. So strong faith could mean well-versed in Scripture. And that being well-versed in Scripture brings about real trust in God. In the same way, someone who's new to faith in Messiah Yeshua, who does not ha- does not have, would not have a strong faith as one who would be, say, an elder and believed in Yeshua for years. The rabbis who didn't believe in Yeshua, didn't believe Yeshua is the Messiah, had faith in God. They were well studied in Scripture. And so uh, the point I want to make is having faith is a broad topic. But we want to know what Paul meant by faith. And I think we have to understand that when Paul says faith, he means that you have faith in the Messiah Yeshua. 
that he's the son of God, that he's the redeemer of Israel and the nations. Because that's what he told us in chapter 3, verse 21. He says, But now a righteousness from God, apart from the Torah, has been made known to which the Torah and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Messiah Yeshua to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came through Messiah Yeshua. God presented Him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in His blood. And so when Paul says faith here, he means faith in Messiah Yeshua. Strong in faith would be one whose trust, who, who has great trust in the redemptive work of Messiah Yeshua, and he's unshakable. Right? So what does he mean by weak? Well, again, one whose faith is weak would be one who is, who is new to his belief in Messiah Yeshua. Or it could mean one who's on the fence. Think about this. It could be one who's on the fence. Maybe a Jewish person who loves God, but he's not quite made up his mind about Yeshua. One who's heard about Messiah Yeshua, he's contemplating whether Yeshua was the promised Messiah. What he's heard about Messiah Yeshua makes sense to him, but he's waiting to see if certain prophecies, like the one we just read in Isaiah 49, are coming to be. Are the Gentiles turning to God? Are they turning to Torah? Are they turning away from idol worship? If we go to verse 21, I think, That makes this explanation, this interpretation, a lot of sense. Listen to what it says. It is good neither to eat flesh, nor to drink wine, nor anything whereby thy brother stumbles, or is offended, or is made weak. And now he's addressing eating practices here in Days of Worship in chapter 14. And of the eating practices, he's addressing those things which, which one would eat that might make his brother stumble or be offended or through by which he would be made weak. And by weak he means weakened in faith in Messiah Yeshua. So we can assume that there's something in the eating practices of some of those in Rome that are causing a brother to stumble, to doubt that Yeshua is the Messiah or stumble, Or that in some way is weakening their faith. Their resolve that Yeshua is the Messiah. Now Paul throughout the chapter is speaking of food. Which would cause a brother to stumble. But now here in the latter part of the chapter. What does he do? He adds wine. He hasn't talked about wine before. He adds wine. Where did the wine come from? How would wine make a brother stumble? Well, we could take it to mean that uh, someone had a drinking problem and, and, and you gave him a glass of wine and he stumbled because of that. But I don't think that's what he's referring to here. So why would food and wine cause one to stumble or to be made weak in the faith? Well, I want you to think about something. If you were a Jewish person in the first century and you were in this congregation in Rome, and you were contemplating that Yeshua perhaps was the Messiah, you'd read the prophecies of Isaiah and Zechariah, they're all over scripture, about the nations turning to God. 
And you were wondering if what you saw with the nation supposedly turning to God through Messiah Yeshua was truly the sign of the end. What would be the first thing you'd look for? Well, the first thing I would look for is are they really turning to God? Have they really separated themselves from their idol worship? Or are they still worshiping multiple deities? Right? It was certainly on the minds of the disciples when they rendered their decision in Acts chapter 15 of what would be required of new Gentiles turning to God. Remember, we covered this earlier, but we'll read it again. Verse 19, Therefore, this is my judgment, that we not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols, from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood. For Moses from ancient generations has in every city those who preach him, since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath day. The very first thing that any Jew would look at to determine if a Gentile had turned from God, particularly one in Rome, where the whole city is filled with idols and temples of idols, is this. Has that Gentile left his idol worship? The Jewish people were very concerned with foods and wine that had been offered to idols. The fact is, over the centuries, the rabbis developed very strict opinions regarding prospective Gentile converts in idol worship. As an example, we can see one of these opinions in a scripture, in Acts chapter 10 and verse 28. It says this, And he said to them, You are well aware it is against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or visit him. But God has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. You see, what if you were a Jewish person and you were to go into the home of a non-Jew and lo and behold, there's an image of Zeus or some idol. So, to keep that from happening, you just wouldn't enter the home of a non-Jew until he had fully converted. What if you sat down to eat a meal with a Gentile and the meat he put on the table came from a temple of an idol? Or what if the wine that he served he had also used for a libation to an idol? The Mishnah Torah, Sefer Kedeshah, goes into great detail on drinking wine that had been offered to idols and meat that had been offered to idols. And granted, it's written much later than the first century. However, we can understand by reading this the direction that it was taken by the rabbis. And the Mishnah Torah says, consuming any amount of wine, no matter how small, that has been used as a libation in an idol worship or poured out as a libation to an idol or any food that was offered as an idol was punishable by flogging. So if you were a Jewish person who was on the fence as to whether Yeshua was the Messiah, but you believed, as the prophets tell us, that the sign of the end of days and a sign of God's servant, the Messiah, would be that the nations, because of him, would turn toward God and toward Torah and would forsake their idol worship, would you start looking to see if that was the fruit of their lives? How about if the Gentiles you saw professing faith in Messiah Yeshua were still drinking wine offered to idols, meat offered to idols? Would that weaken your faith that Yeshua was truly the Messiah? It certainly would not make you envy, would it? 